It's Monday morning. You woke up not feeling as smart as you should be. You know you just took that ACT test, and you don't think you did good on it. Good thing for you, we have a new presenting sponsor, AwesomeScores.com. Get you a pen, get you a paper, write it down, AwesomeScores.com. This is what they are. The ACT is hard. We all know that. Let's get prepped for it. You didn't do so good this last time. Let me tell you about Dave. He's a master of math and algebra, so you know what? He's going to take care of you. AwesomeScores.com normally charges $2.99 for their six-hour, two-day session with Dave and $99 for the eight-hour on-demand video version of Dave's class. But because you're listening to the Crucial Conversation, we're going to take care of you. Go to AwesomeScores.com. That's a live online prep course for only $1.99. Yeah, you heard that right. Don't adjust your earphones. You heard it right. $1.99. You know why? You put in the promo code. Oh, my Lord. I can't even talk. I'm so excited. The promo code. Crucial, man. (laughs) What you laughing at? The promo code crucial. (laughs) And that'll get you a discount. Dave's prep is normally $99. We like you. You don't have time for all that video stuff. He's still going to prep you up. $99 ain't going to cut it for you. You're you're part of the crucial family. Put in promo code crucial. Get $75. We'll take it at the discounts given at checkout. And don't forget that the last date for ACT is December 14th and 29th. I can't talk, Brian. I am so excited about this that I can't even talk. The last date for testing is December 14th here in 2019. Go to awesomescores.com or call Dave personally at 501-681-7248. Awesomescores.com. That's their passion is you nailing the ACT. Make sure you put in promo code CRUCIAL and get that discounted price so you can act like you're smart around your friends again. You've got your third layer on and you're considered putting on the fourth layer because it is too cold in your house. It is time to warm that place up by getting a hold of Nat Anderson today at Anderson Heat and Air so he can get your air unit running like it did last year and the year before. But in the meantime, something's come up and your furnace ain't working right. He can come in and he can fix everything. You need to get a hold of him today at 870-664-1967. Again, that is Anderson Heat and Air at 870-664-1967. You know why I feel like we have good numbers on the podcast, Brian? Why? Because we tell the truth. We speak honest, and we talk about stuff that other people don't want to talk about. So let's talk about that house you're living in that you don't even have the desire to put up a Christmas tree in. You don't even want to hang lights on it because you're like, hey, this thing's so ugly, not even Christmas lights is going to make it look nice this year. That's why we're bringing to you Live Oak Realty. Call Dustin today. He'll get you that dream home. Brian? You dealt with Dustin. Tell me how you enjoyed your experience with no, him. No, he was phenomenal. I got in a house, uh, backed out of one deal, and got into another house within one month because he was there to support us and he was there to make the deal happen. We had within, I think, three weeks until Melissa had to move into the new home. Otherwise, she was going to be homeless because she had got out of her old rent. Dustin made it happen. So you can call and get that same level of service at 870-520-2522 or go to listwithliveoak.com. Tell Dustin that the conversation sent you and that you're just trying to get out of that rat-a-tat-tat-rat-a-tat-tat-tat house. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but when you talk about rat-a-tat-tat, it makes me think of tapping on a drum. It is time to go to the drifteddrumcompany.com. Dr. April Jones's website is there. And, and a few weeks ago, I know we've talked about it several times, a few weeks ago we went and we met Dr. April Jones and a lot of her friends there uh, with all these different um, 
foundations that were there. It was a phenomenal time. And at that event, Dr. April Jones was promoting her book, No Mess, No Message. You need to get your copy today, and you can get it at thedrifteddrumcompany.com, and you can get it for 10% off the, the asking price if you use the promo code CRUCIAL. Not only do you get the 10% off, but you will receive a free, that's right, free. Ain't nothing in this world free. You apparently don't listen to the conversation enough. Get a free companion journal with the purchase of the book, No Mess, No Message, if you put in promo, promo code CRUCIAL at a checkout. Brian, talk to me about Jonesboro Cycling ATV. Man, when you want to go for a ride, it's, you know, people, I've seen people right now, it's deer season and people are going out and they're hunting and all that. And, and the way you want to get back in them backwoods is you need an ATV that's going to get you back there. You want to get a hold of the guys at Jonesboro ATV. Tony, will you give me that website real quick? Yeah, sure. It's jonesboroCycle.com. Or you can call them at 870-935-2887. Or if you're here in the local area, go by and see them. They're over on Fair Park Boulevard. I think it's 2887 Fair Park Boulevard. Go by and see them. You know what? Even if you want to buy something, they'll deliver it to your house. You didn't hear me wrong. They'll deliver it to your house no matter where you're at. Call them today at 870-935-2887 or go to jonesboroCycle.com. If you see anything on there you like, whether it be a helmet or goggles or riding gloves, maybe you need some ratchet straps, whatever they got, put in promo code CRUCIAL and get 10% off your entire purchase. Brian, this next sponsor is close to home for you. Tell me about whenever you get real hungry. I'm not, whoa, 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 hold up. I'm not talking about lunch hungry. I'm talking about I got to eat something. Oh, or you're I'm talking about real, real hungry. What's your solution? For over 20 years, Lazari Italian Oven has been serving the Jonesboro, Northeast Arkansas community with their Italian cuisine. You can go to Lazari's today. Um, they're down located down on South Caraway Road, and their phone number is 870-931-4700. When you go there, you don't want to miss out on all of the things that they have. Uh, they've got all of their sauces are made in-house. All their salad dressings are made in in-house. It's none of this stuff that you bought from some corporation. But 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 Brian, and, I I just I just ate at the Olive Garden. Shut your mouth. That's all I got to say. Shut your mouth. What you need is. But you, Fazoli's is cheaper. Uh, but yeah, but you're going to be in the bathroom for three days, <laughs> and so don't. Don't, I mean, you're going to mess up. Your whole immune system is going to get messed up going to eat in all these other places. Lazari's is the only place where you can go, where you can de depend on the food to be good and you not be miserable. After. Listen, here's a good rule of thumb. You shouldn't hate yourself after you get done eating something. Because I know there's some place you can go and you eat it and you feel bad because you're like, oh, my gosh, dude, I just now clogged up four arteries. We call that. Brian, that hold up. I was at the airport yesterday, and I decided to get me some pasta. I went and got me a nice penne noodle. I, I, I don't want to hear nothing. Hold on. I hold on. Hold on. I, I put some red sauce on it. I put my fork in it to pick it up, and all I had was water. No meat sauce. That was disappointing. Go to Lazari's today. That won't happen there. Won't happen. You won't leave half hungry. And you get <laughs> what does that mean, Tony? Half hungry. I don't know. Why don't you give me a guess on what half hungry means, guys? Thank you for tuning into the podcast this morning. We know you're thoroughly going to enjoy this next podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Crucial Conversation. I had uh, a minister that I respect very much came to me um, on our Sunday morning service. He called me aside. He said, "Brother Erickson, in the next few weeks, months, you're going to have some very bad thoughts." He said, cast them out. Don't let them 
take root in your heart. I thought about that over and over and over. And so I refused to get bitter, refused to let that drag me down spiritually because life has its winning moments. Life has its devastating moments. Um, I had I lost a son. He was only 31 years of age. He died suddenly. And uh, that was a difficult setback in my life. Uh, this was almost on the same level as losing my son. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. In our movement, Brian, there is nothing that is more powerful than a visionary. And a visionary can come in multiple different forms. But I have a true appreciation for someone who sees the best in people from a young age. And today we have someone on the podcast that I know you guys are gonna enjoy. We have Brother Gary Erickson, uh, currently in St. Louis, Missouri, librarian at Urshan College. Uh, Brother Erickson, thank you so much for spending your Saturday with us. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing, but you're, you're sitting here talking with a couple of guys from Arkansas. Thank you so much. Well, it's an honor to be here. Uh, so. I'm thrilled to have you on. Like I said, you, I, I want to I validate what I said. Um, you, you held a position in the United Pentecostal Church as a, the Sunday School Director. You were the Sunday School Secretary. We'll get into that eventually, but um, let's, let's find out who you are. Have you been in church your whole life? Yes, I have. Okay, so tell us about where you come from. Okay, I was born in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Spent my childhood in that state come from a family of oneness apostolics, uh, primarily with the United Pentecostal Church International. Uh, come from a big family. My dad had 10 children in his family. My mother had 10 children in their family. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, my mother had four brothers that were all pastors. Uh, there were several pastors on my dad's side as well. So I would have been a black sheep for sure. Yeah. If I had not lived for God. And then my mother was also a minister and a church planner. Uh, my brother, my older brother, was a minister. And both of my grandparents, uh, well, on my mother's side, my grandfather and my grandmother were both ministers. My grandfather was a church planner. And uh, when he passed away, they actually elected my grandmother to take his place. Uh oh. So um, <laughs> was that was that received well? <laughs> yes, it was. I think uh, I think she discovered that it was a greater challenge than she wanted, and she pastored. I don't know how many years, but it wasn't a lengthy time. But that's that's basically my background. I was filled with the Holy Spirit when I was uh, eight years of age, baptized in my pastor's bathtub and uh, grew up in church. That's and awesome. My mother was my pastor most of my early life. And so that had it, 
has it had its positives and its negatives. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my life was a uh, I lived in a glass house, so all my mischief was great sermon illustrations. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, was your family whenever, like your grandmother, whenever she pastored, was she a, a full-time pastor or did she work as well? No, she was full-time. Okay. Uh, recently, you, you've, you've published a book this, with the Pentecostal Publishing House uh, about bivocational ministry is the reason why I asked. Uh, can, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I was a bivocational minister for about, about eight years. I was in the petrochemical industry as a draftsman and uh, saw a lot of success in my career. My last job was in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. I was over a department. I had like 30 employees uh, who were all in the drafting profession. We did uh, production platforms offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. But um, I enjoyed my work and at the same time I enjoyed the pastoral work and so it was really two full-time jobs so my life was was very hectic at times doing that dual role and so it's always been a passion in my heart for men who pastor and work simultaneously and when I started to graduate from Covenant Theological Seminary uh, I had to do my dissertation, and so I had uh, people encourage me to do it on bivocationalism. And so when you do a dissertation, to keep it from just swelling out of, out of bounds, you have to have a really good focus. And so I chose the UPCI as my target, and my goal was to determine how bivocational pastors view the theology of work or understand the theology of work. And so I did a survey, like an informal survey, first of all, in the UPC through the North American Missions Division. And they assisted me with that. And I determined that 60% of our pastors in our fellowship are bivocational. And like over 90% of our church planners are bivocational. And so this is a huge uh, aspect to the ministry of the United Pentecostal Church. And so I'm grateful that I chose that subject. I interviewed seven bivocational ministers. I interviewed a Spanish-speaking pastor who's a building contractor. Uh, I interviewed a postmaster. Uh, a psychologist, a forensic psychologist, and then a counseling psychologist. I interviewed a chaplain. I interviewed a man who had his own business as an accountant. Um, so I had, I had a, a good mix, good variety of, of pastors. And so when you interview, you probe into their thoughts and their understanding. And so that's what my paper was about. And after it lay in my hard drive for about four or five years, I decided to publish it. So when you do a dissertation, it's quite disjointed and very awkward, and it's not for casual reading. Yeah. So you, you basically have to overhaul uh, 
your dissertation when you put it in a book format. And so that's what I did. I uh, took out a lot of the starchiness and a lot of the repetition and so forth. And so uh, the Pentecostal Publishing House, Word of Flame, agreed to publish the book. So it's their book. And it was published uh, just prior to our general conference this year. So I applaud the bivocational pastor. Um, and let me, let me qualify that statement. Uh, the pastor who is at our church in Jonesboro, um, he took our church and he did not have to go to work. Um, uh, our church, I'm not going to get into everything, but in the bylaws there's a certain percent of money that's allowed to the pastor and all this. And our, our pastor is, uh, has very, he's got great studies, Brian. He, he has, um, the, he's still pursuing education to this day. And he was telling, I believe it was on a Wednesday night Bible study, that um, he felt that God was kind of pulling him back to work, that he gave him knowledge for a reason. And what he was going to do was give uh, money back into the church to help the, the debt situation. You know, he kind of took over an uncomfortable situation when he came pastor. But it's because of men that have the ability to pastor a church and be bivocational. That, that's not easy whenever you're tending to, you know, three, four hundred people on a Sunday. You got to look out for them seven days a week. That's that's your flock. But I applaud the man that's able to do that. Um, and thank you for for writing to, to to us to help understand that. Yeah, it's not a full time job and part time pastor. That's right. It's that's right. Full time job, and all the time pastor. Yeah, that's right. All the time, twenty four seven. Um, so well, you go ahead. I'm okay. sorry. Well, what I discovered in my research is is my objective initially was to determine if bivocational pastors had a biblical theology on work and I determined that they did not. Our pastors do not think deeply about what they're doing. It's more of a pragmatic thing. They do it many times out of necessity or just a unique personal calling. They feel that's what they are supposed to do. And so a big piece of my book is the theology of work, a biblical perspective of work. And it's absolutely amazing how big that is in the Scripture. So, yeah. so give me a snippet of that because I'm thinking of a, a post that Tony saw on Facebook, that great source by which we gain knowledge in the 21st century. Uh, there on Facebook, there was a post that somebody had posted about their job and how they are a manager and how they are offended at society yeah. for putting a undue burden on the workforce of the American society today to think that a time schedule matters and that people should just be able to work with home work from home and everyone should be able to just Managers shouldn't expect our, their employees to show up to work because they should expect that they have lives outside of work and they should be more understanding. And so when we think about the theology of work, I'm curious as to see, you know, what your, the, the biblical analysis is about work. Okay. Uh, one of the biggest uh, eras, people think that within the Christian community, 
is that work is a result of the fall, and that is totally untrue. Uh, Adam and Eve were given assignments before they fell, before they sinned in the garden. They were to care, to keep it, to dress it. They were given dominion. Um, and so they were workers caring for the garden. They're also created in God's image. And God is a worker. God worked six days, only rested one day. God works. There's evidence of that in Scripture. We don't have time to you know, go through the Bible and point all that out. But God maintains. He sustains the universe. He is perpetually at work. Jesus said, my father works, and so do I work. Jesus proclaimed himself to be a worker. And so work is built into the fabric of humanity and godliness. It's not a temporary thing. It's an eternal thing. I think I can prove, I have proved it to my own satisfaction. There was work before the fall, there's work after the fall, and there will be work in eternity. I don't agree with the concept that we're going to float on clouds and wear halos and play harps. Uh, that would be nice for a few hours. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. I think uh, there's evidence in Scripture that lets us know that in eternity we're going to be given responsibility and we're going to be busy because that's the nature. That is the way we're made. That's our function in existence is to be workers. Now, was the fall, uh, did, did the fall have some effect on work? Yes. Uh, work before the fall was quite uh, enjoyable, but after the fall, we have to contend with the adversaries. We have bodies that get tired easily. Uh, when we do repetitious work, we get bored and due to the monotony. And so, yes, uh, after the fall, there, were, there was a lot of encumberment that, that, uh, that, that fell upon us. And so, yes, sometimes we curse the curse yeah. because we are subject to the daily grind, like the illustration you just used. Someone is frustrated because they have to work and they have to be committed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a world that that person's describing it would be an absolute disaster. Oh, they, I'm sure that individual has, you know, they may not have any problem in their workforce, but I guarantee you when they order something on Amazon, they're expecting it to work yeah. just the way they, they want to be able to track it end to end. They expect it to be there at a certain time. Yeah, and they want it there so, now. <laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those things that it's just, again, that was my thing is when you think about it, if that concept is spread to society, then what happens when the doctor just says, you know, I just don't feel like going in because I have something to do. Yeah. And then the delivery room backs up and then the, the surgery, you know, that, I think that's a, a surefire way to destroy society yeah. when the trains don't run on time. Well, it's our psychological makeup as well. Uh, God put this innate need for significance. We all want significance. Yes. We, yeah. we pursue it. Some people do it in terrible ways by doing mass killings or do other bizarre things just to get recognition and to be significant because it's a compelling desire in everyone. But God gave us work. 
to fulfill that, that need that we all have. And uh, work satisfies that need for achievement, uh, self-realization. Also, our work is a form of worship. Uh, in a lifetime, we'll work over 100,000 hours. And pastors sometimes set up a scenario where the work the workforce is in opposition to the church. This is a terrible arrangement to burden a congregation with. Can you imagine the benefits a pastor can derive if he'll encourage and dignify the occupations of his church members and say, you know, what you do on your job, you're not only contributing to society and making the world a better place, your work and your talents is something God gave you and right. you're giving that back as an expression of appreciation for the blessings that he sent your way. And so work is worship. What would you say to the person who says that um, working at the church, whether it be uh, on the lawn or sweeping the floors or painting the walls is work of idle hands that you know something that they don't feel necessary to do that um, that's why there's a pastor what do you say to stuff like that oh I think that's a bad attitude absolutely the Bible says whatever your hands find to do do it with all your might uh-huh I think uh, productivity uh, resourcefulness is the way we express our gratitude for life our right. gratitude for salvation. It's, it's something we render back. Uh, yeah. I remember growing up, um, my dad wasn't the pastor at the time, but there was not a day that went by that if something needed to be done at the church, we were the one doing it. And um, I remember <laughs> uh, my dad said, uh, you know, he would always take the, the, the scripture, seek ye first the kingdom of God, you know, and he would just kind of uh, substitute that work. Seek ye first the, the churchyard, then you can go do what you want. Or see, seek ye first the, the flooded church basement, then what you, you know. But it, it instilled in me that we're all building a kingdom together. And um, I can't do it without Brian, and Brian can't do it without Brother Erickson. Brother Erickson can't do it without, you know, we, we, we work as a team, and whether it be... Um, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or from behind the pulpit on a Sunday, we all work together as a team. And that's something that I love being a part of our organization is we work as a team to build the, co the kingdom, and we work together. That is so true. Um, I kind of want to shift gears now. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your um, time um, as Sunday school director. Um, that is such a... Um, a uh, respected place in my household um, because of who my in-laws are. You know them well, yes. uh, David and Kim Ramsey. Um, uh, my father-in-law passed away a few years ago. Well, I guess it's been a little longer than a few years ago. And my mother-in-law decided to continue to build the ministry that they had started together called Street Rage. And um, to be sitting here with you, Brother Erickson, uh, brings my heart joy because um, in that kingdom that we're building together, we're on the same block, and that's really neat to me. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, your work in children's ministry. 
Well, I give honor to Brother Ramsey. What a great man, what a great spirit he had. Yeah. Just a lovable person, uh, loved children, and uh, he and his wife made such a wonderful team. Very, very impressive people. And so we still reflect on his life and grieve his passing, but what a legacy he's left us. Yeah, I told, I told my wife the night that he died, uh, uh, I remember we were sleeping at her mom's house in Blyville, uh, and we were both in bed. We weren't sleeping. We were just laying there talking to one another. It was probably 2 or 3 in the morning. My wife was, you know, real sad, as, as you know she would be, losing her father. And I told her, you know, I, I guarantee you on the streets of gold right now, David's blitzing for street rage tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can see I can see him doing that right now. Yeah. But such a such a great man. I, I I've said it before. I'll say it again. My only regret, Brother Erickson, about my my late father-in-law is not knowing him longer. Yeah. yeah. Such an impact he's had on so many people's life. But share a little bit about um, your your involvement with children's ministry. Okay. Um, uh, since getting licensed with UPCI, I've held some administrative position, and. Uh, I worked with the youth division, worked with uh, World Missions. And when I moved from Louisiana to Mississippi and became a full-time pastor, uh, at the very first sectional conference, I was elected Sunday School Director of that section. And it's kind of amusing. I'll tell a uh, joke on myself. <laughs> um, I was new in the section. I wanted to meet everybody. And so I love Sunday School, love that that work and so I voted for myself <laughs> and uh, brother Travis our district superintendent was there and uh, he said we have a first in in the history of my memory he said brother Erickson you have been elected 100 percent and of course everybody knew I voted for myself at that point <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I was received very well and I served for, I think it was eight years in that capacity and loved it. And then I was elected as a district Sunday school secretary, served in that capacity for a short time. And then I was elected director. And I served as director for Sunday school for the state of Mississippi. And I was in that position for eight years. And then I was ready to retire from that ministry. And I got elected general secretary of the Sunday School. So that caused me to uh, move to St. Louis, and I served there for five years, and then uh, Brother Ronald Nation retired, and I was elected as director, served as director for nine years. For nine years. Yeah. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of things change through the years um, when it's come to um, children's ministry and um, I'm a baseball fan, and there's a there's a there's a term that goes around uh, or a phrase that's next man up, and you you was in the children's ministry um, as the director. You said for what eight years? Nine. Uh, nine on the on the general level, and um, you you didn't retire at that point. Um, you went in, um, I guess you were still running for election, and um, you did not get that. 
uh, re-election. And uh, before our listeners say, oh, man, what is he talking about? I want to let everybody know we talked about this off, off record. And uh, Brother Erickson said he would speak on this. Um, but I'm sure that it almost came to a shock to you um, because you know that you've uprooted your family and you went from the comfort of what you knew to headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri, and you're following God's path and will for your life, and then all of a sudden it's like the people around you doesn't see it. Um, how did you overcome something like that? Well, it, I'll confess it was a difficult moment for me. Uh, when you're in a directorship, you have a lot of moving parts. You have a lot of things that you're trying to deal with. And so the upcoming election is not something I really thought about that frequently. Um, I thought about it in fleeting moments, um, but it's not something I brooded about or, or mm. you know, put out feelers to see how things were going for me. And so it did come as a shock. But what happened, I think I understand uh, the dynamics of it, in 2008, we had a terrible financial decline in the United States. Yes. Uh, with the mortgage uh, fiasco, um, a lot of people lost their jobs. And in the Sunday School Division, we had struggled since its creation financially. And for many years, we were subsidized. Uh, when I came on board, we were still being subsidized, about 100000 a year. Well, after I arrived, they began to have trouble at the headquarters offices financially. Uh, we were being challenged, and so I understand that. They cut our, they did it incrementally. It was like 25000 a year over a four-year period, and so we were on our own. We were not like other divisions. We did not have a margin or a cushion. The money that came in, the money went out. We didn't have anywhere to cut like some divisions who do grants, uh, you know, to other ministries, when they suffer financial setbacks, they just kind of draw those in. And then when things get better, then they go back to where they were. We didn't have the benefit of cutting back in our transfer funds. And so I was meeting the budget committee like every six months, and they were really pressuring me to cut, cut, cut. And so I had cut everywhere. I had nowhere else to cut. And uh, technology had brought about a lot of innovations and a lot of the things we were doing in previous years were streamlined now. We were, uh, we were forming out a lot of projects. Uh, other people were voluntarily helping us. And so in our office, I start looking around for where to cut. And, and to make a significant cut, I come to the conclusion I had to cut the general secretary of our division, had to cut his salary, which was a terrible thing to do because... Because uh, you understand how hard they work. Yes, and he had resigned his church, moved to St. Louis. He had two young children. And so this is probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in life. But I made the decision. It was approved by, by management. 
and uh, it was not received well through our fellowship because yeah. this man had been elected by our constituents, by ministerial constituency, and uh, Brother Erickson had stepped in and, and tampered with, with our choice. He didn't lose his position, but he lost his salary. So he had to go back into mm -hmm. ministry. And it eventually worked out for him, and he pastors in Kentucky uh, today. Uh, but this angered a lot of people. And uh, so when the election came around, I think people were thinking if uh, Brother Knox had to go, Erickson has to go too, because this is not fair. And I understand that. And so I may have a few enemies scattered out here and there. <laughs> Don't we all? Detest the sight of me and rejoiced the day I left. I'm sure I have a few enemies like that. Sure. And that's their choice. Uh, they well, probably have, put, you, have reasons for that. Yeah, you were put on such a high pedestal, you know, and like you've already said, you live in a glass house whenever you're in situations like that. But there was a very prominent man, and I won't say his name just out of respect. He pulled me to the side at General Conference one, son, or one year, and he said that um, um, children's evangelists, children's ministers, and children's workers are underpaid, underappreciated, and... Um, just be prepared for that if this is something you want to do. And it's almost like um, the movement that we're, I'm not going to say that we're a part of, that the movement we're a part of, but it's almost like um, I can see that almost because I see how hard my mother-in-law works. <clears throat> she is no longer the uh, children's pastor in our local area or our local church. She evangelizes more now, so uh, she... I didn't feel like she was giving it justice, so she gave that up. But I'll, I'll remember um, every single Saturday uh, we'd ask her, hey, you want to go out for dinner or something? She's like, well, i got to go visit these kids first, uh, make sure they're coming to church tomorrow, make sure everything's okay. Um, you know, Monday night rolls around, hey, uh, we, we were eating some leftovers from we cooked too much on Sunday. Do you want to come over? Well, I can't. I'm teaching Bible studies to, the, to our bus kids. Um, well, what about um, Wednesday? Do you want to come over? She lives in a further city. Well, I got to go pick up kids for church. You know, it's, it's things like that that people don't see that is behind the pulpit. It's not behind the pulpit. It's, it's behind all that. It's behind that curtain that children's ministers and evangelists and workers, they need to be, I'm just going to say, need to be appreciated more for, for what they do. Um, you know, they are not building the kingdom for the next generation. That is the generation. They are not our next top preachers. They are our top preachers. And people, you know, just tend to, tend to overlook kids as, as, a, as a whole. And, I mean, if you want to talk about faith and, um, you know, talk about believing, you know, I'm a firm believer. Let a kid lay their hands on you and pray for you. I mean, they have faith. I yeah. mean, they put our faith to shame, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's something. Um, to like what Tony's saying, there's there, there's absolutely there is people that are like Sister Kim. They are they are rare to find somebody that is that devoted to to their to to that uh, what she's willing to do. I mean, she's constantly making connections with kids. I mean, I, I know whenever I worked with her, 
in, in the, the Sunday school department for a short time that, that she and the, the teacher that was, that, were, that was with her, that they would write letters to the kids all the time. Those personal connections that you can't, you know, you can't replicate that in any other way than just yeah. being there and actually having, making the time to, to have a connection. And there's no greater group of people to do that with than with children. Absolutely. I mean, we. I mean that that's the most precious thing that that we. Of course, I, I don't. I don't have children at this stage of life. But Tony, I'm sure you can attest that that's the most valuable thing you have as Olivia. Absolutely. And yeah. any if you were in a situation where, for whatever reason, you didn't have a walk with God or you didn't have a vehicle to get to church or whatever, that somebody would from the local church go out of their time to pick your daughter up. Yeah to write your daughter a letter. That's right. What impact would that make on you as a parent? Uh, it'd be priceless. Absolutely but, uh, priceless. But yeah, our children's evangelists need to be uh, compensated better. Uh, many of them uh, spend a lot of money with uh, children's props paraphernalia, props and that, those kind of things. And it's a lot of, uh, of effort to keep an inventory of stuff like that and to haul it around uh they they work very very hard yeah and i get to see that firsthand now yeah, <laughs> if, sure do. if you were um if an individual came to you brother erickson and said i feel like i want to do something for god and i feel like he's leading me in the direction of children's ministry but i don't really know if that's for me i don't know if that's my personality what would your message to them be? Uh, well, it would depend on the individual and mm -hmm. knowing the individual. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to pursue uh, a ministry where their where their talents lay, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and sometimes those can be adverse. Uh, I'm not a children's minister. I attempted to be, and was not very successful. I tried to do puppets and. I used to, uh, when I was with the youth division, I would teach uh, in the youth camp. And I managed to get by. But at the end of the day, I realized that was really not my forte. I yeah. was not really gifted in that It's area. a different breed of folks. I think, mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to discover their gifts and pursue their gifts and not necessarily their desires. Hopefully they're in harmony. Um, I had a young man in my church who wanted to sing, wanted to be a great singer. And uh, of course, some people can sing better than others. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. And, uh, yeah, there's a wide spectrum out there, isn't there? Top of the list. <laughs> uh, he wanted to play the bass guitar, and he had absolutely no ear for music. And we struggled with him for several years. And uh, finally, he came in to the church one day when I was praying. He said, uh, Brother Erickson, my wife's threatening to leave me. I said, well, that's not good. What's going on? He said, well, she says I'm embarrassing her by playing the bass guitar, and if I don't quit, she's going to leave me. I said, well, maybe it'd be a good idea for you to stop playing the bass guitar. Yeah. So with his wife's help, we were able to move him out of <laughs> uh, music ministry. Uh, and sometimes the only way you know where you fit is to fail. 
you have uh, a desire to do something, you try it and it doesn't work out, you don't give up or you don't just keep pushing and pushing, you know, in that direction when you see it's not working, but you, you know, like a heat-seeking missile, you know, you recalibrate and you go another direction and you keep searching, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. And that's my advice because it's like the work environment. There are people who dread getting up every day of their life because due to maybe misfortune or bad choices, they're in a career that they hate. And that's a sad way to live your life. And, and in ministry, you need, you need to be in a ministry where uh, your talents are. Sure. Um, you, to harken back to uh, the conversation you had to have with the um, secretary of the youth department, and children's when, department. Uh, what I asked, yeah, you know, they're youth too, but <laughs> but I, I see what you're yeah, saying. Children's ministries now. Yes. Uh, whenever you whenever you had to have that conversation, you just made reference of a man in your church that he wanted to play the bass, but it really wasn't his his place. And obviously, there had to be a conversation there at some point. How do you handle? the conversations that most people would be like, I don't really want to be put in that position to have to tell somebody bad news. Like uh, those... Those managers. Those, uh, what's crucial conversations, I guess would be a good thing to call them. Like, for instance, with Tony and I, we're managers at our work. I'm a manager at the post office. He's a manager at FedEx. And so there are times where we have to go to the employee and it's not personal or anything like that. It's a business thing of being like, hey, this is... Hey, I not, like you, but... Yeah, it, <laughs> There's a certain, you know, a standard operating procedures that's not being followed, things like that. And, and conversations like that are not my strength. Um, I don't like to have any kind of confrontation. So I'm asking, uh, how do you handle those hard conversations? Well, I'm non-confrontational as well. Uh, but as a pastor for 21 years, I learned how to accept the truth. And, and to hit things head on and deal with them because otherwise they get worse and worse. And so I've had many unpleasant encounters in my life, but it's part of life. And if you're in leadership, you have to do that. You have to make those decisions. You're the one who has to be there where the, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and uh, you have to confront people. And uh, the only tips I would give you is to try to pe treat people with as much dignity as you can. I don't think even criminals should be uh, treated with inhuman dignity. Even if they're executed, it should be done in a formal way, in a way that retains some dignity. Uh, and we do that in America. We do the best we can to accomplish that. And I think, especially in the church, even people who maybe uh, has wronged us, uh, I've had people really behave in bad ways toward me. And uh, you have to pray for them, and you have to keep a good attitude, and uh, you have to put on your rhinoceros suit and not let it harm you or affect you emotionally. Mm -hmm. And you have to deal with what you have to deal with and let the chips fall where they may. That's part of being a leader. Yeah. And that's what I always told myself. I'm a leader, and this is part of leadership. 
you don't have, if you don't like the heat, you have to get out of the kitchen. Yeah. And so that helped me to say, I'm a leader. Wow, God has put me in a position of leadership. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But this is part of it. I've got to deal with this unpleasant situation, but I'm a leader. I'm going to do it. Well, Erickson, I want to ask you one last personal question, unless Brian has any more. Um, we'll, we'll transition into um, what we came here for. Um, a lot of this stuff we're talking about right now is kind of off the cuff. Um, but I wanted to ask you, whenever you uprooted your family and moved to St. Louis and realized that you weren't going to be reelected, um, did you realize or did you ever come to a realization and that made you begin to question God's calling on your life? Well, it was a shock to me and it was very humiliating. I had worked all my life. I had never been dismissed from a job. So when I did so, I did it on a grand scale in front of over a thousand of my fellow ministers. And so it was extremely humiliating. But it's life and you have to, you have to deal with what life throws at you and you have to keep your cool, be a Christian. That means more than anything else. And so I'm stunned, I hardly know how to behave or what to do, but I knew that I needed to address the voters and let them know where I was coming from. And so they always permit that. And so you, you tell the audience, Thank you for the privilege of letting me serve for 14 years. It's been the greatest honor of my life. I love all of you. I accept your decision. Your will is God's will for me at this, at this juncture. And uh, you try to protect your heart from getting bitter. I had uh, a minister that I respect very much came to me um, on our Sunday morning service, he called me aside. He said, Brother Erickson, in the next few weeks, months, you're going to have some very bad thoughts. But he said, cast them out. Don't let them take root in your heart. I thought about that over and over and over. And so I refused to get bitter, refused to let that drag me down spiritually because life has its winning moments. Life has its devastating moments. Uh, I had I lost a son. He was only 31 years of age. He died suddenly. Mm. And uh, that was a difficult setback in my life. Uh, this was almost on the same level as losing my son as far as its impact on me emotionally. Because my life was so full, I was so involved and so just loaded down with responsibility. And January the 1st, I had absolutely nothing to do. Now, I was right in the middle of my doctoral program and was working on my dissertation. So that helped because I had plenty to do. Um, I didn't know whether to get a job. I didn't know whether to evangelize. I didn't know if I should try to pastor again. I had a couple of overtures from churches wanting me to be their pastor. And 
prayed about each one and couldn't feel that that was what I needed to do. And uh, in the meantime, I said, you know, I, I've got to bring in some income for my family. So I began to look for a job. And I found a secular job with a roofing company. And so I'll never forget the day I drove up to the parking lot of this roofing company. And I saw this shabby warehouse in this so-so neighborhood. And I said, God, is my life come to this? And God said, yes, you can do it. So I got out of my truck, went inside, they hired me. And so I worked for that company a few months and I uh, had some very interesting experiences because I had been out of the workforce for probably 30 years. And so to go back into a worldly construction environment was quite uh, a cultural shock. Yeah, can imagine. <laughs> and so I did that for a few months, and then uh, I, the opening came here for uh, a librarian. And uh, I'm not like Donald Trump or Biden. I'm not wanting to rule the world. At my age, I'm 71, so at my age, I'm not, I'm not looking for big responsibility. And so this job's very suited for my personality and for my time in life. And so I've been here almost four and a half years. So with books, how many books have you written? 22. 22 books. And what are, what are some of the titles out there? Like what, what uh, or the genres, specific um, target audiences of those writings? Okay, I'm a generalist. I don't have a particular field of study that I have just really uh, devoted my life to. I was a pastor, so my philosophy was I need to preach the whole counsel of God. My sermons were organized in, into 80 different subject matter. Um, and so that's kind of the nature of my books. Uh, as a writer, I look for vacancies, blind spots in our fellowship. So the first book I wrote was on the plan of salvation, the conversion experience. Uh, the second book I wrote was on worship, Pentecostal worship. Both of those books I felt targeted an area that was deficit in our fellowship. Um, and then I did other books. Uh, at the time I wrote the book, there was a raging controversy over music in our fellowship. Uh, we were going through a transitional stage uh, moving from the Southern Gospel uh, to uh, more contemporary uh, styles of music, and it was creating enormous upheaval in our fellowship. So I wrote a book uh, on music during that time to try to dispel some of the controversy and some That's, of the. Uh, can I ask about that real quick? Some of the angst and contention between. Right. The groups. Yeah, can I ask about that? Uh, sure. Can, so, whenever you're saying you wrote about music, are you saying like, was it, um, let's say, for instance, in the book, is it justifying like the um, almost an apologetic way of saying that musical instruments are allowed in the church, or was it more of a, hey, even though these styles are changing, it doesn't uh, doesn't mean that it's wrong because styles change over time. What was, what was the main focus in that? 
The premise of my philosophy was music is amoral. There is no such thing as sacred music. Now the Catholic Church tried to codify a particular style, it's called the Gregorian chant. Pope Gregory was uh, quite industrious in that way, uh, uh, building policies and that kind of thing for the Catholic Church. And the Gregorian chant is that everybody sings the same note and you have no musical accompaniment. Now that was sacred music. Now if you want to hear what that sounds like, you can go to YouTube and you can, you can hear the Gregorian chant. <laughs> that was sacred music. Well, you can't do that. Music is saturated with culture. It's a cultural thing. You can go to the Congo and their churches will have different music than they'll have in Mexico City. You can go to New York City to an African-American church, or you can go in comparison to uh, maybe a church in Little Rock. The music is gonna be very different because it's culture. And so my philosophy is we need to be more patient with one another and we need to rise above culture and realize when it comes to music style, now I know there's a danger in borrowing too much from the world. And you can bring things too quickly into the church and it can be contaminated and can bring more harm than good. And so there's a balance. So that was my philosophy. You have to have a balance and there needs to be uh, a detachment from so much uh, emotional investment. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard people say, you know, if it's not Southern gospel, it's of the devil. <laughs> and uh, I think my grandparents say that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more thing. I'm sorry to go back and forth, uh, but b before Brian wanted to talk about your books, I wanted to, uh, there was one last question I wanted to ask you um, regarding the topic we were just talking about. So whenever you said that you were starting on that Monday, you didn't have a job, how old were you at that time? I was 63. 63, perfect. You went to work for a roofing company? Yes. <laughs> it, it, wow. Well, the reason I ask that is, what do you tell the individual that feels like they've lost their purpose? Um, we talked to, uh, to a lot of people uh, on this podcast, to a younger generation. A lot of younger people listen to podcasts because, let's face it, some of the older generation doesn't know what a podcast is. But on our podcast, we talk to a lot of younger people. But what do you tell the older people that feel like they've lost their purpose because of the place they're at in their life? Well, it depends on the individual. They may have health issues that make them uh, subject to being sidelined. Mm -hmm. uh, if they still have relatively good health, my encouragement would be stay busy. I could be retired right now, but I have no desire to retire because of my concept of work. I'm going to work as long as I can work at something. You should write a book called No Desire to Retire. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that would have been a good subtitle for his book. <laughs> and uh, I understand uh, when people have failing health and they're sidelined and there's no more opportunity for them, it's, it's, uh, it's a sad time for uh, the end-of-life experience. I but think we all the... should prepare for that. 
What about the healthy individual that, uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, um, they got laid off? Yeah, say they got laid off, or say um, um, just there were their families falling apart. They've something like, something of that nature, where they're everything's completely fine on the health spectrum, but under foreseen uh, foreseen circumstances, they're they're they feel like they've just lost their purpose. Yeah. Uh, my advice would be is not to give up. Don't ever give in to despair and depression. Fight back. And uh, sometimes you feel like all you have left is the fragments. But you take those fragments and you reinvest them. And you find something productive to do. Uh, you may not get paid for it. During my time of, of trial, I even offered to work free at UGST. Uh, I said, I, you know, I'm going to all these act, these uh, resources that you're provided. They have they have resources for people who are unemployed, and they had a, an organization here in the St. Louis area, and uh, we met. I think it was every two weeks, maybe once a week or every two weeks. I think it was on Thursday. And, and we had a place where we met each week. We'd have guest speakers who came in and told us how to do an elevator speech. Uh, they would tell us uh, where job opportunities were. And, and you get to know these people. You get to meet these people who are in the same situation you're in. So my advice is probe with the internet nowadays. It's amazing. You can find people in your same situation. You can find people who can offer advice, who've been through the same thing. It's a wonderful day to live. Yeah. Uh, the internet is just absolutely you can't you amazing. can't hide from information. I mean, <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when there was no internet, and you had to go to the library and pour through books. And most of the information was old, unless you could get it out of a magazine. Thank so God for Al Gore. there's so many resources <laughs> today. So what you do is you take the fragments that are left and you reinvest them in something yeah don't ever sit and brood over your misfortunes don't cry over spilt milk right well tony i don't know i don't know how you want to do this in this next segment of our conversation if it's something we want to do as kind of a, a podcast in and of itself or if you want to continue to be tagged into because we wanted somebody we've been talking about having a a podcast that uh, has a focus on the the new birth yeah, in, in particular. So that way that our listeners, if there's somebody out there that you think um, needs to hear that message about sure. being born again of water and spirit, you can send them to a resource, maybe if you're not comfortable doing a one-on-one Bible study yourself. And whenever, uh, as you heard when we talked about some of Brother Erickson's books, that he made mention that he wrote a book about salvation and the conversion experience. And uh, whenever he, we were on the phone with him and he said that, we were like, oh, well, here's the There's perfect opportunity. Yeah. It, someone who's written a book on it. Um, and so I want to I want to spend some time with you, Brother Erickson, talking about um, what it means to be saved. And, and so where I want to begin is when we say that we're saved, what is it that we're saved from? What what actually is sin? 
Well, sin began in heaven. Lucifer rebelled against God's authority. And uh, a third of the angels were kicked out with him uh, to the earth uh, to torment us now. But sin is anything that, that rebels against God. Uh, it can be an attitude. It can be an act. And so sometimes our sin is in our heart because we have a bad attitude. Now, Satan was not wanting to overthrow God. He was just wanting to be equivalent to God. So that's a sin because sin is rebelling against God's divine order. Now, that really speaks profoundly to our generation and to our world today, our contemporary world. When you defy God's order of things, such as gay marriage, this transgender stuff that's going on, when you defy God and say, I refuse to accept your order of things, I'm going to create my own order, run parallel to yours, to me, I think that's sinful. Now, we don't all do sin on that dramatic a level, but anything that just rises up in rebellion against God's order of things is sin. So you explain to us what sin is, and we must uh, repent of our sins. Um, the apostolic and doctrine that we, we live by is found in the book of Acts, chapter number 2. And in the verse of 38, it, it gives us the steps of salvation. Um, we all follow those. But what is, um, Brother Erickson, what is true repentance? Well, uh, repentance in the Old Testament uh, came from a military word that was issued to soldiers to do an about face. So that's the roots of the word. So it means you're going in this direction and you flip and you go in the opposite direction. So repentance is making a decision. That's what some denominations call it, making a decision for Christ. We call it repentance because that's a good King James word that you see frequently. And uh, repentance is uh, the metaphor of death is used frequently in the scripture to typify what's actually happening in a person's heart when they repent. Repentance is like a death to self, to self-will, because we all want to do what we want to do all the time. Yeah. And so what you have to do is get off the throne of your life, put Jesus on the throne of your life, and say, now, God, I'm subject to your authority. You tell me what to do. I'm your servant. I'm going to be obedient to you. That is true repentance. And when a person comes to God, faith is the first thing. You have to believe. You can't repent unless you believe. So believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was truly immaculately conceived, born of a virgin, gave his life a ransom, shed his blood for our redemption. You have to believe that. You have to believe that he rose again from the dead. You have to believe that his salvation is for you personally. Once you are there, then you can make that decision. That's repentance. Is baptism essential for salvation? And let me follow that up with, if so, why is um, 
why is it essential? Because isn't it just water? Why I've seen multiple people get baptized in swimming pools. You are baptized in a bathtub. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that makes baptism essential, and does it have to be somewhere specific? Okay, baptism was a part of conversion. Some denominations say baptism is a sacrament. In other words, a worship method. But baptism is different than communion. Communion can be done over and over and over as a, uh, a method to provoke our memory and, and to uh, stimulate expressions of appreciation to God, memorializes his redemptive work and so forth. So it's a very, uh, it's also done to unify the body. It just has many ramifications as a sacrament. Baptism is only done once, and it's done at a particular time. It's done at your conversion. Now, in the New Testament, nobody was Christian until Jesus came. And and the disciples, I guess you could call them Christians because they were his disciples. But really, the church was born on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, and they were filled with the Spirit. And, and to those who were listening and watching what was happening, this miraculous occurrence, they said, what must we do? In other words, after Peter preached, he even told them, and he was very direct, he said, some of you have crucified the Lord. You were participants, and you, you know, were, you know, you were in, in favor of crucifying the, the Messiah. Well, they were convicted, so what must we do? And that's when he said in Acts 2.38, you need to repent, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Even he says what happens, your sins are remitted in this act, and then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the promises to you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, the Acts of the Apostles, is a narrative primarily. It has sermons in it and so forth but it, and, and prayers, but it's primarily a narrative. And we're so grateful that we have that narrative because it tells us how that first church operated. And so you can see uh, descriptions of conversions in that historical record in Acts chapter 2. You see what happened there. And then in Acts chapter 8, they were baptized. Acts chapter 10, they're baptized. Acts chapter 19, they're baptized. All of these at conversion. And so baptism, we know from the historical record and from uh, apostolic teaching, that baptism is encapsulated in that initiation into the church of Jesus Christ. And it, it goes in so many directions because fingerprints are all over it from the Old Testament all the way through the Bible. Um, you see it typified. And my first book uses all of the Old Testament types and analogies and metaphors to salvation. Like in the Old Testament, the tabernacle. You had the altar of sacrifice called the brazen altar. Then you have the labor of water where the priest washed. Then you have the holy place with a golden candlestick, the table of shoe bread, the altar of incense, which is a, a, a symbolic of worship and communion with God. And so you see that sequence 
repentance, water, you got you know, repentance, water baptism, and receiving yeah. the Holy Spirit. The, the death to self, the washing, and then the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Spirit. well, you see it in crossing the Red Sea. Here they were. Pharaoh's army was about to capture them. And, uh, and so that was death. They were about to experience death. And they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, got safely on the other side, and God collapsed the waters and destroyed the, their enemy. And they had a great celebration. That's a type of the new birth. You see it in the seed. Jesus said, except a seed die and be put in the mm -hmm. earth, it can't yeah. live again. So my, if it I was died, raised on a farm. I want a farm. And I could go into great detail how all that works because I watched my dad do it. The seeds would dry up, but he would store them for the spring. In the springtime, he would put the seeds in the ground. And I did some research, and it's actually the moisture in the soil that causes the seed to germinate. And then it springs to new life. What a beautiful picture of conversion. And so you see it... Uh, well, going back to the deliverance from Egypt, the blood on the doorpost, you know, symbolic of death, the death of the sacrificial lamb, and then the waters of the Red Sea, and then the rejoicing of deliverance from their Egyptian bondage. And so you see these types through the scripture. And the Bible says, there are three that bear witness in the earth, the blood, the water, and the spirit. Blood, death water, the washing of baptism, the spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The fingerprints are just all there. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And so Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. When we're introduced to the kingdom of God, we go through that initiation process and we're buried with him in baptism. We die with him in repentance and we rise to a newness of life through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so people say, oh, you know, baptism's not necessary. Well, why not? Why would someone who wants to be a Christian say, well, I don't want to be baptized. Can I be saved without being baptized? Why would someone ask that? If you love Jesus Christ, you're sold out to be his disciple. You want to do it right. And you want to follow the, the New Testament pattern. You get baptized. So why split hairs and say, oh, it's, it's a sacrament, it's, it's a work, uh, various things people come up with. So with, on focusing in on the subject of baptism, though, um, as I'll, I'll, let, me, let me play the role for a moment of someone that would be receiving this Bible study. But when we talk, you talk about baptism and how we should be baptized in Jesus' name, but in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Why, why shouldn't I be baptized the way Jesus said to be baptized rather than the way Peter said in Acts 2, 38? Well, let's look exactly what is said in Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name, in A-M-E, not names, plural in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously, Father is not a name. Mm -hmm. Father is a title. It's a role in life. Son's not a name. So he was saying in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. 
Jesus said, I come in my Father's name. He also said the Holy Spirit will be sent in my name. So Matthew 28, 19 is actually saying be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's just worded a little bit different. How do we know that? By looking at the historical record and seeing how those closest to Jesus, those new Christians, how did they obey what he told them to do? And I've got charts in my first book that have every mention of baptism and uh, what occurs and, and the location and who's involved and what the purpose was and the mode and so forth. You can see it in a chart form and it's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's so yeah. indelibly written in the scripture that baptism was such a big part of that initiation rite. When, when Luke goes to record the end of his gospel, and he's, he's ending it in um, the last, obviously the last chapter of his book, one of the things that he's, he's making mention of is uh, the great commission that Jesus is giving. And when Jesus is, is, is speaking in the, the 24th chapter of Luke, in verse number, uh, I just had it, starting at 46, it says, And said unto them, Thus it is written, Thus it is behoved Christ to suffer and to raise again for the third day, and that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name. Who is it that Luke was quoting that Jesus was making reference to? You go back to that first verse that, that I, I mentioned there. Jesus says the Christ. Mm -hmm. What is the name of the Christ? It was Jesus' Jesus name. And he said that repentance and remission of sins. And in, Luke, in Acts 2.38, what is the act of remission of sins? baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Yeah. And so with that, when we continue through, and we've talked about these types and shadows, so, so what is the Holy Spirit? And how, how does that affect uh, the believer in the conversion experience? The Holy Spirit is a descriptive expression of God, who God is. There are many spirits. We have a human spirit. Uh, there are evil spirits. But he called himself the Holy Spirit. It's that invisible power of God Almighty. The power of Jesus Christ to transform lives, to do miracles, to provide guidance. So the Holy Spirit is God with us in this present age. Jesus is not here in physical uh, in a physiological way, but he's here in a spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit. So how, how does that come into an individual? Like when, when Peter says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What is the gift of the Holy Ghost? Well, I think the gift of the Holy Ghost is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's referred to as baptism in the Scripture. Not real frequently, but it is referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And baptize means to completely whelm, wash, or engulf. And so when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're engulfed, you're infilled, you're imbued with power. Uh, a lot of terms are used. So you're not only baptized on the outside, you're baptized on the heart, inside, uh, in the heart. And so it is when 
God's Spirit comes into your life to assist you to be an overcomer and to be an obedient disciple. Is the Holy Ghost, is it essential or is it just an added blessing? The Holy Spirit is essential and all evangelicals believe that. There may be a few that are confused, but overwhelmingly, evangelicals believe that the Holy Spirit is essential to salvation. And where so the, that's not that's not where we differ from other yeah, denominations. Both yeah, uh, where in our salvation process is the Holy Ghost given? And uh, the reason I say that is a lot of times uh, people don't receive it the same way or at the same time, or you know that process that. Um, Peter gives, repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Um, there's people that I know personally that's been baptized and they have, still haven't received the Holy Ghost, and it's been 30 years later. So where, the, where during that process is the Holy Ghost given? Well, it is true that experiences vary. The intensity of experiences vary. Uh, the sequence of the conversion initiation will vary there are some people who get baptized before they receive the holy spirit some people receive the holy spirit after they're baptized um i believe that we need to go back to the scripture once again and try to find patterns in the scripture and one of the greatest that comes to mind is in acts chapter 10 when uh, peter uh, went to cornelius's household and he preached the gospel to them and they were filled with the spirit and the proof that they had received the spirit is put put right there in the scripture they received the holy spirit the same as we for we heard them speak with tongues and so every place where people are filled with the spirit in the new testament if there's a description given it's always tongues They spoke with tongues when they were filled with the Spirit. And so we can gather from that, that historical record, that is the sign that accompanies the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Many denominations think it's something mystical. Uh, They believe the Holy Spirit comes when you're baptized. Some believe the Holy Spirit comes when you make a confession of faith and so forth. Uh, It appears to me, according to the historical record, and the descriptions that are given in the scripture that speaking with other tongues is that telltale sign that you have indeed received the Holy Spirit. Now, can you speak in tongues and it not be the Holy Spirit? Of course. Yeah. You can just gibber some uh, foolish syllables and say, well, I'm speaking in tongues. Yes, you can do that. Uh, you can actually be inspired of a demonic power to try to mimic speaking in tongues. But that doesn't negate the fact that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is real. There's always counterfeits to anything of value. Somebody's going to try to create a counterfeit. So, yes, there are counterfeits. But when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking of the tongues is a miraculous thing. But that's not, the, that's not really the best part. The best part is your life's changed. You're filled with joy. You feel a freshness and a newness that you didn't feel previously you feel like you're embarking on a new journey and you've been empowered to to reach your goal I mean it's a it's a wonderful 
uh, euphoric experience to be filled with the Holy Ghost. My next question has a part A and a part B. <laughs> um, part A is, how do I know I've received the Holy Ghost? Obviously, it's evidence speaking in tongues, but how do I know that? And part B is, how do I know if I'm full of the Holy Ghost? Well, that's a difficult one. <laughs> to measure or gauge uh, the gas gauge, yeah, I think would probably be a difficult thing. I don't know how to answer that. Sure. I think it's something you have to do conscientiously, and you try to achieve that level of being full of His Spirit. Is it maintainable? Probably not can't just stay full and running over all the time yeah we do go through seasons of drought but I think the important thing is that you never give up and you never stop even when you have failures you pick up the pieces and you go again because if you'll confess your sin he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness it's so important to repent and keep moving forward and try to stay full of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we can determine like you do the level of your gas tank, but... Boy, that'd be nice if we could. Yeah. I'd be afraid to show it sometimes, though. <laughs> I know it, it's hard to measure, especially when we look at our own lives in a, in a biased way, one way or the other. There are those that bias against themselves as negative, and some have a very positive, ego-driven view of themselves. But I think when we honestly look at ourselves, we have to look and see in terms of am I full of the Holy Spirit is how full of me am I mm -hmm. in terms of how much of my will am I accomplishing? How much of my thoughts are dictating the way I see other people? Mm -hmm. And again, it's hard to, to gauge that because we either have that bias of, well, my thoughts are always so wrong or my thoughts are always so right. And so it's going to be hard for an individual. But, but that's my favorite thing to, to tell a, a new convert when they ask me, well, how, how do I maintain that fullness of the Holy Spirit is you have to have less of yourself. Because I, I think that in this conversion, the experience that, that can be had, I think the repentance act, that is an act that is an ongoing thing. When, when you repent and you've turned from sin and you've, you've turned from, as the Bible would, would say, like your wicked ways, as you've turned from doing the things that were self-will motivated rather than God-will motivated, and you begin to, to move forward, I, I think there are times in life that even after you've been baptized and you've received the gift of the Holy Ghost, you'll still struggle with that past life. And I think repentance is something that you do on a daily basis. The Apostle Paul, he makes reference of, because we talked about repentance being likened unto a death, the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Baptism, one thing that baptism does is it creates a barrier between you and your past sins. It washes them away. And I think there are times in your walk with God, you're going to struggle with, well, am I full of the Holy Ghost? Because look at what I've done in my past life. 
when you think those thoughts, you need to think back to that baptism and how that baptism has created a great gulf between you and that enemy of that past life and that past guilt. And you are measuring your own life and effectiveness with God based on what your past has done. And it's a past that even God doesn't remember. And I certainly think that whenever God's Spirit comes in, it gives you that, that quickening power to live a life that God wants you to live, that resurrected life of the Spirit. And I do think it's a daily thing. I think it's a daily walk, and I think there are times in life we have to honestly look at ourselves and see, where am I at? Because just because you've gone through the Acts 238 experience doesn't mean you're going to become perfect overnight. Yeah. You're still going to have struggles. You're still going to have thoughts. But the thing is, is that you take those back to the cross of Jesus Christ, and you know that God loves you enough that he's not wanting to just snatch from you his spirit because you've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. But he loves you and wants a relationship with you. Uh, Brother Erickson, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk with us. I'd like to ask you, um, do you have any recommend? You can be very selfish with this as well. Yes, you can. <laughs> do you have any recommended reading for our, our audience it can either be on the subjects we've been discussing. Uh, it can be just something that's been beneficial to you, your own personal writings. As I said, you can be very selfish. And here's with the thing. We know you vote for yourself, so go ahead and yeah. plug your own book here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I read a lot of books. Uh, I have one that transformed my life. The title is Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. Uh, born, I was born and raised in apostolic movement. We believe in divine healing, believe in living a victorious life. We believe God can deliver people from various things. And sometimes we don't get healed. Sometimes tragedies strike our lives, difficulties snatch from us our loved ones. Um, go through very difficult times. This book really helped me being Pentecostal apostolic. How how do I deal with life's tragedies and losses? And uh, I would recommend that to anybody who's going through a time of difficulty, uh, disappointment with God. I think uh, we have disappointment sometimes with our relationship with God. We don't understand why God didn't do things for us, why he allowed things to happen to us. We feel that we've been treated unfairly by God. I mean, we might as well admit it. We do get disappointed sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's one of the books that really changed me. Uh, I read it twice to make sure I was understanding. And in fact, I wrote a booklet uh, I can't remember the exact title. It's uh, uh, Keeping Faith During uh, Tragedies, something to that effect. And uh, it's called Theodicy. Theodicy is the defense of God in adverse situations. And so this, this book that I'm referring to is a book on theodicy. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Excellent, excellent book, well written. Mm-hmm. One thing that we want to do before we uh, end our podcast with you, Brother Erickson, is we want to give you the floor for a final thought or something God's been dealing with you on or something you would like to share um, with our listeners. 
that um, maybe, like Brian said, maybe we've covered it, maybe we haven't. But just give us what's on your heart right now. Well, I think uh, as Christian people, I think the thing that is probably troubling me the most right now is the condition of our world, especially America, and the anti-Christian movement seems to be getting larger and larger. Atheism is growing. Uh, we have politicians now advocating taxing churches because they disagree with gay marriage. Uh, we have people running for office that are uh, living lifestyles that are just what we've always considered perversion. Uh, and there seems like there's almost a disdain for Christians if you do uh, the internet uh, news and you read the comments that people make. There's an, an anti-Christian sentiment out there that's very bitter mm -hmm. toward Christian people. Mm -hmm. And I think as, as a church, we need to uh, lay down our little petty differences. And I'll even venture to say we need to lay down some of our animosity toward other denominations. And we should stop trying to fight with them and demean them. But we should try to find some common ground and try to work together because we have a bigger enemy than each other. Wow. Especially in the church. Mm. In the church, we need to quit arguing over parking places and, and uh, who's gonna sing a special on Sunday night. Uh, wow these kind of silly things. I mean, we're, we're in a spiritual warfare. Yes. And we need to, to lay down foolishness and pick up the sword of the Spirit and realize that the devil would like to destroy us all. Wow. And in a country that was founded upon Scripture, they were not perfect people, but at least they had faith. The majority had faith. Some were agnostics, but the majority have faith, and even the agnostics had great respect for Scripture. Yes. But we're living in a day where we have people in power who have absolutely no respect for the Scripture. And, uh, and so we're, we're, in, we're in a different world than we were. Uh, teach a class, and we just did a, a lesson on postmodernism. And I've lived long enough to see our culture transition from modernism to postmodernism. I see it very clearly. Younger generations can't see that transition, but I know how the world used to be, and then I see how it is now. And uh, I suppose that's the thing that I think about the most, is where is the church gonna go? Uh, what kind of decisions are we gonna make in how to deal with with the, uh, the challenges that are gonna be thrown at us in the coming years because I don't see it subsiding. Yeah. I see it maybe intensifying. And so our people need to be grounded in the scripture. They need, need a lot of teaching yeah. so that they're able to defend their faith. Mm. Uh, some of our young people can't defend the faith. They, they believe it 
but they can't defend it. And uh, that's, a, that's a very dangerous place to be in. Yeah. You need to be able to defend your faith, give reasons for your faith. Absolutely. This episode, we have covered a very broad spectrum of topics. Um, something that I personally pulled out of this conversation is um, no matter what you may be facing, um, know that God's call is still on your life and you still do have a purpose no matter what all the, the surrounding things say, that we are all in this together for a common purpose and that common purpose is for a greater purpose. Thank you guys for listening to The Crucial Conversation. Thank you.